0: Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Dei Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with Our Body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, I would ask that you open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Luke. The ninth chapter of Luke, we again have the opportunity to return to our study of this this gospel. This has been a wonderful and rich and I hope uh, helpful study for you. I know it certainly has been for me. And so this morning we come to verses 23 through 26 in particular. And so before we attune our minds to what has been written, let me read these familiar words to you. These familiar, but for the most part, unpopular words of Jesus, this is without question one of his hard sayings that is often skipped, but as we'll see, one that is essential to understand if the gospel is to be truly understood. And so let me begin by reading these words for you. Again, just four short but extraordinarily important verses for any who would desire eternal life, starting in verse 23 of chapter 9. Luke records, and he, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who shall save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes back in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If you have been in the world of evangelicalism for any length of time, then you understand that it has become an increasingly mixed bag of variegated messages and declarations of truth and certainly half-truths. It has become, for the most part, an undiscerning world of promises and claims that may or may not, frankly, have anything to do with the true message of Jesus. It is a world that has become riddled with politics, social causes, self-help, self-esteem approaches that all seem to utterly coat the landscape of so-called Christianity. And while that has always been around and Will always be around, frankly, until the Lord returns. One of the reasons for that is because I think so many pastors and so many leaders have neglected a very important command. This is a command that you know well. Jesus states in John chapter 7 and verse 24, something that is conveniently ignored by many. He says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous, judgment. That is to say, do not judge or do not determine what is true or the truthfulness of something based upon appearance or something external, based upon the way that it makes you feel, perhaps most importantly, based upon modern approaches of science and religion, philosophy, psychology, or even the popular consensus of modern culture or the consensus of the modern church. Rather, as he says, and this is a command that we are to obey, he says, judge with a righteous judgment. Which, of course, is a statement of our Lord that flies in the face of so many who say that Christianity is supposed to be about shedding judgment. And this is a command that if You are faithful to following Jesus, then you are ordered by him to discern every issue. You are to discern every claim, every practice of life, both inside the church and certainly outside of the church, by a fixed standard. And of course, as he qualifies it here, that standard is to be the standard of absolute righteousness, which for us, as we know, is something that's contained in the word of God. In fact, the Word of God is the only source and sure rod for measuring anything. Psalm 119 and verse 89 says that your word, O Lord, is forever settled in heaven. And so we need an objectively fixed standard which sits outside of us. And again, that is the Word of God and the Word of God alone, the very thing that Psalm 19 is talking about. We need a standard that is unchanging, a standard that is immovable, We need a standard of justice and righteousness, which flows from one whose very nature and essence is righteousness. And yet in our day, there has come about churches and pastors and preachers and professors of truth who have taken the words of Jesus and used them not for the purpose of discerning truth from error, but for the purpose of preaching a kind of temporary self-fulfillment. In fact, there are countless churches, even within our city this very morning, who are right now preaching to many, many people a message of self-love. God will love you when you first learn to love yourself. God has created you and wants you to understand how beautiful and perfect and lovable you truly are. And so until you see you as God sees you, then you'll always be anxious. You'll always be dissatisfied and discontent. In fact, these are typically self-appointed, self-professing shepherds of the church who've come to understand the power of consumerism in an age of tremendous spirituality. They understand that people are inherently spiritual. They understand well the truth of Ecclesiastes, which states that God has placed eternity on every man's heart. In fact, many... Companies have even figured this out, which is why there are billions of dollars spent every single year on marketing. At the end of the day, all that marketing is is an attempt to get people to believe that whatever you're selling is going to somehow fill that void. It'll make them happy. It'll satisfy them. It'll bring them contentment, even a lasting contentment. In many churches and so-called Pastors and teachers have come to understand this. And so many of them now market to a consumeristic type of church where they are trying to sell you a certain kind of Christianity, certain form of spirituality. Just figure out what people want or at least think that they want and sell it to them free of charge. Whether it's true or not is not really the issue, just figure out what people believe will make them happy, and then provide a platform for it. And so over the years, there has developed a new gospel, a new message of good news, and that message has been packaged in a gospel of self-love, gospel of self-care, a message of learning how to engage in things like positive thinking and positive self-talk, This is a gospel of learning the art of detoxifying your life. A gospel of how to meet felt needs. A gospel of learning how to deal with relationships and self-criticism and self-failure. A gospel, frankly, of learning how to eliminate anything that you think is plaguing your life and making you unhappy. This is a gospel that says God wants you to discover fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction, and victory over anything that makes you feel dissatisfied. Anything that holds you back, anything that might limit your success or happiness or self-derived sense of purpose or living in a manner that you think is consistent with your, quote, authentic self. And the reason that sells is because the guiding assumption in all of that is that the problem, of course, must be something outside of you. No one wants to be forced to look at what's actually inside of them, and so let's just point their eyes outward. And so your problem is your circumstance. Your problem is your job. Problem is your spouse. It's your father your boss, it's your children. Your problem, frankly, is any toxic relationship or circumstance that makes you feel bad about yourself. And so there has been developed a sort of quasi-spirituality and Christianity that uses the name and platform of Jesus to offer a therapeutic approach. Therapeutic approach that at the very least, will numb you to the reality of your own life. And make no mistake, this is a consumeristic approach that at its core is a call for self-fulfillment. Self-love. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and listen to this, because this is the entire point of Jesus' words in this passage, but the message of Jesus is not a call for self-fulfillment, but in the first place, a demand for self-denial. This is a gospel of self-denial. And that is a message, beloved, that does not sell. In fact, that is a message that cannot sell. This is a message that does not resonate with a generation that have been told over and over again that they are somehow owed something. And beyond even the gospel of self-love or mere fulfillment, the gospel of self-denial, which as we're going to see is the true gospel and full gospel, is also a message that cuts against the message of cheap grace. I've talked about this in past, but this is a view of the gospel that says that Jesus doesn't actually demand anything of you. It's a gospel that presumes that it can simply take the salvation of Jesus, but doesn't need to live like Jesus. It's a gospel that says heaven comes by acknowledging Jesus as Savior, but for some reason submitting to Him as Lord is optional. It's a gospel that says that we will take heaven without the character of heaven. It'll take the indicatives or the promises of Scripture without the imperatives or commands of Scripture. It'll take the justification given from God with no thought of sanctification before God. It'll confess a positional righteousness, but with no thought of conforming to that righteousness. It'll take the grace of God, but without thought of the holiness of God. And so it is an approach to the forgiving work of Jesus Christ that says, I will take your forgiveness and maybe even offer some lip service about obedience. But the reality is that it doesn't really matter if I obey or not because it's all covered under the blood. And so we can really just keep living how we want. Which means effectively that they do not understand that a truly transformed person, and hear this, a truly transformed person will necessarily produce a transformed fruit. Cheap grace fails to understand that a new heart can help but to produce new fruit. In fact, that is exactly what we saw in chapter 6 and verse 43 of Luke where Jesus says, for there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. And notice, it's not that it might be known or even that it's sort of known, but rather that is an absolute statement, for each tree is known by its fruit. Fact. And so there is something definitive that you can point to that declares to a watching world that this is indeed a transformed heart. And again, I say this all the time, but it's never all that hard to tell if someone is a genuine Christian, is it? Jesus says that they are not known by the mere words of their profession, rather they are known first and foremost always by the fruit of their profession, There's nothing impressive to Jesus about words, nothing impressive about an intellectual assent to certain facts. Rather, he is most concerned with what the life produces. And because the fruit of a person's life indicates always the genuineness of their faith. The fruit is what determines and authenticates the state of the tree, the state of the heart. Even the Apostle James says in James chapter 2 and verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. So some in may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And so you believe that God is one, that as you have an intellectual assent to truth and you understand right doctrine and theology, well, you do well, but even the demons believe and at least they shudder. It was in the late 80s that there was a raging debate that took place. It began with a man by the name of Zane Hodges, who was a professor down at DTS, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And he taught a message that came to be known as a doctrine of free grace. Some of you might recognize this debate as the so-called lordship issue or lordship salvation controversy. This was a controversy that took the world of evangelicalism by storm and ignited a massive heated argument. Hodges taught that eternal life was a free gift, and so he interpreted that to mean that salvation therefore came with no cost to the believer. He taught that it was something that just came about by simply believing in Jesus Christ in some way and that there was therefore no need for a true repentance or a true subsequent obedience that was to follow that profession. In other words, he argued that putting off sin and putting on holiness wasn't actually a natural byproduct of the truly converted heart. Rather, it was sufficient for some reason to just merely believe to, quote, get saved. In other words, he viewed sanctification as totally unnecessary for eternal life. And so he taught that there is a very great difference between simply believing in Jesus, which again in his mind would necessarily equate to receiving eternal life, And so there was a very great difference between belief in Jesus and then subsequently submitting your life under his lordship, which is the idea, of course, of becoming a faithful and obedient disciple. It's the idea of pursuing a life of sanctification and holiness. And so you might have heard a person say, or for that matter, even said this yourself, that I have accepted Jesus as my savior, but now I just need to make him lord. I need to reach that second plane of Christian living where he is not merely my Savior, but now he is also my Lord. I need to more fully devote my life to him. I need to become a more committed follower of him. I have other things still competing as Lord of my life. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a career, whatever it may be, doesn't really matter. And so I need to dethrone those lesser Lords from my heart and now make Jesus Lord of my heart. I need to give him everything. I need to become more serious, more devoted. And because Hodges also taught the doctrine of eternal security, that you can't somehow lose your salvation, which is a doctrine that I would agree with. I would use different language. But because he taught that, his message essentially boiled down then to just believe in Jesus and you will be fine. Doesn't really matter if he is Lord functionally, doesn't really matter if you fully committed your life to him or not, rather just believe in him in your heart and you shall be saved. And so really it was just a modern form of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. He quoted passages like, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Of course, the problem with that is that he never actually defined what believe actually means or what belief necessarily implies or produces biblically. And so, salvation and then subsequent discipleship or following more fully after Jesus are two completely separate realities. And so the reason that this issue became such a heated debate is because in response to that teaching of Hodges, John MacArthur then comes along and writes a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus, which many of you are familiar with. And essentially, he made the case that salvation and discipleship are not two separate realities where first you get saved, which is the important part, and then you start pursuing discipleship in some way. Rather, he argued that salvation and discipleship are actually one and the same. They are inextricably connected, and so it is impossible biblically to have one without the other. And so he argued that to be saved is to be a disciple, and to be a disciple is to therefore be saved. And so the entire point of his book was to show how it is utterly foreign to the New Testament, to somehow be a saved person, but not also be on the pathway of true discipleship, to be pursuing a life of true and increasing, that's key, increasing obedience. And so he did argue for justification and salvation by faith and faith alone, but he also tried to show that if a person has been truly saved and given a new heart, then what naturally flows from that heart is a repentance that necessarily results in good works. And so he did not argue for salvation on the grounds of good works, which is what he was often accused of, Rather, he argued for salvation on the grounds of the crosswork of Christ alone, but he also said that a new heart, again, will necessarily produce good fruit. That a truly converted person could never say that it's just under the blood, and so they are perfectly content to just go about life living a life of indulging sin. Rather, a converted person truly converted person with a changed heart is compelled always to put away sin and put on holiness. Tried to show again that it is alien to the scriptures to possess a converted heart, but not be driven daily toward repentance and therefore a change of life. And so the sum of his argument was just to say that you don't in some way make Jesus Lord of your life or make him Lord of your heart when you can get around to it. Rather, he already is Lord, and so it's just an issue of whether or not you're obedient to him. Scriptures are clear that Jesus is that sovereign Lord of the universe, and so we don't make him Lord of anything. He is Lord of your life whether you acknowledge him or not. And so the truly converted heart can't help but to acknowledge his lordship, not just as Savior, but as Lord. And that really is the heart of this passage before us. Justification always results in sanctification. There is no justified person, truly justified person, who is not also on that pathway of daily sanctification or becoming more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. Christian life is not a life to be lived for self, for self-fulfillment, for a sort of self-love. Rather, the Christian life is a life committed to radical obedience unto Jesus Christ. In fact, as Paul says, it is that love for Christ that now compels you, no longer love for self. In fact, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the very core and heart of the message of Jesus and call to follow him. Over and over again, when Jesus called his disciples, the gospel writers were very careful to include that very important detail that they left everything. They left their former way, former life, former identity, they weren't trying to fill that void in their heart. They weren't trying to live their best life now. They weren't trying to find their true authentic self. They weren't trying to see if Jesus could fulfill their own personal demands and expectations. Rather, this was a radical abandonment of self. This was a veritable laying down of everything that had formally defined them. Former pursuits, former loves. Former identities, former goals, former anything that got in the way of a radical affiliation and obedience to Christ. And so you can understand then why the gospel message, the full gospel message, is a message that will not sell. This is not something that markets and because you can't promise to fulfill an inward desire, which again is all that marketing is, but you can't promise to fulfill an inward desire if the very content of your call is to deny yourself. And so, in many ways, the gospel is a radical but backwards call. This is something that is upside down. This is something that says if you want to go up, you must first go down. And so let's take a look at the actual text, and here's where we see this call. This is what Jesus now brings to the light for these followers. And remember, they have just made a profession of him as Messiah in verse 20, that he is the Messiah. He is that promised one of God. In our modern vernacular, you could just say that they've just accepted Jesus into their hearts. I don't like that phrase, but I'll work with it. And so what Jesus does now is notice he immediately launches into a teaching as to what that profession or that recognition of him must necessarily require. What does the profession produce? What does the confession of Jesus as the Christ now demand of the professing disciple? That is the issue. And so notice what he says, verse 23, and here's what I'll just call the gospel mandate. This is the gospel mandate, verse 23. Notice he says, and he was saying to them all that if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so here you have notice three commands or three imperatives, and they should be understood as three different aspects of a singular principle. And so what you have in verse 23 is the principle or the terms of true discipleship, and it comes to you in three different ways or in three different aspects. And so notice he says that upon a confession of Jesus as the Christ, you must follow him, end of verse 23, but then notice following him also includes two very important components, and that is first a denial of yourself, but then second, a taking up of your own cross. There are many willing to confess Jesus and claim that they have been saved by him and that they believe in him, whatever believing in him means. They might even say that they're following him, whatever they have come to understand following him means. But the problem is that there's nothing that they can point to to show that they have first denied themselves, nor that they are in some way taking up their cross daily. And so Jesus says, notice that it is impossible for you to be a true follower of him after that confession if these first two commands are somehow absent from your life. And so, what does this mean? What what does it mean to deny yourself? Well, we understand what it means, first of all, to confess him or to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, which again is all that. Hodges thought was required. All you need to do is make the confession. All you need to do is assent at an intellectual level that Jesus in some way is the Christ. What does it mean to deny yourself in the light of that confession? Something Hodges missed. And again, the very thing that makes your confession a full confession or a genuine confession. First of all, this is a very strong word. This is the word neomai. This is a word that actually means to oppose something. In fact, it's the idea of refusing to be with something or even disassociating with something. It's, it's even a form of denial or renunciation of something. In fact, this is a word that is used at times in direct contrast to the idea of confession, confession. And so in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 23, for example, he says, whoever denies the son, there's the word, whoever denies the son does not have the father, but the one who confesses the son has the father. And so here the idea of denial is set in contrast to confession, which means in some way that it's actually to confess the opposite. And so having just come off of that confession in verse 20, where, again, they confess Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus then immediately looks at them and says that to truly confess me is to necessarily renounce yourself. In fact, that is the exact word used to describe Peter's denial of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. And so it's more explicitly the idea of disassociating or even shedding a particular identity or association. It is refusing to be linked in any way, again, a very strong term. In fact, the idea here is that to deny yourself is to come to Christ and say, I no longer want to be associated with myself. In fact, I've had it with myself. I don't want anything to do with my life. I don't want to determine my life. I don't want to control my life. I no longer want to follow the passions of my life. And so you come to Jesus not because you think that he'll somehow fulfill you or complete you, but because you want him to now replace you. In fact, you want to exchange your identity for his identity. You no longer want to follow your own self, your own identities, because you want to follow him. And so this is about killing everything in your life that has been wrought about through the former sinful pursuits of self. This is about coming to Jesus and saying, I am done with everything that I am. Sick of my sins, sick of my depravity, sick of everything about myself, frankly, And because as you look at your life and your goals and your dreams and all of your agendas, all that you can see is the pursuit of the sinful self. And so you see unworthiness. You see that you are nothing but a sinful, wretched lover of self. And so you come to see the desperation of your own situation, the desperation of what it means to be a person soaked through completely with sin. And so the one who confesses Jesus as Messiah and Lord comes to him in a renunciation of himself and says, Just tell me what I need to do. That is what a true follower does. Tell me where I need to go, tell me what I need to believe. Tell me how I need to live. In fact, that's the very essence of following somebody else. You're not in charge. And so again, it's not very hard to recognize a person who has truly come after Jesus. In fact, I would say that the true converted are always the most desperate. I have dealt with enough people even in my pastoral life to recognize that these are the ones who come who are no longer fighting, no longer resisting, no longer justifying and rationalizing their former way of life. Rather, everything that they've done and everything that they've tried, everything that they've pursued has utterly failed them. And so they realize that they need to hand their life over to something else, something new. And so they renounce themselves. They submit their life under the full lordship of Jesus Christ. They dethrone themselves as king and because they've come to recognize the true king. And again, they're not making Jesus Lord. Rather, for the first time, they're recognizing that he already is. And so again, it's not hard to look at a person and wonder if they're truly following Christ as Lord in word only. Again, you will always know them by their fruits. When you look at them, you see what their life is producing or not producing. In fact, in the context here, it's because in many ways, they'll be marked now by a kind of self-sacrifice. That is one of the ways in which self-denial is expressed. To confess Jesus as Christ and Lord means to renounce yourself and the regular pattern of your life will no longer be one of self-fulfillment, but self-sacrifice. It'll be a life marked by a consistent pursuit of death to self, just like their Lord. And don't misunderstand, this is not becoming a monk. This is not stripping down and eating nothing but locusts and honey as John the Baptist did in the wilderness. This is not some kind of higher plane of living or some hyper-masochistic spirituality or white-knuckled self-discipline or self-mutilation. Rather, as Ephesians chapter 5 says, this is seen in a very normal and everyday way. Like, for example, how you self-sacrifice to love your wife. seen in the self sacrifice of submitting to your husband seen in the self sacrifice of how you raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the lord it's seen in the self sacrifice of how you're a faithful worker at work and how you treat those beneath you with respect And so again, nothing complex, nothing hyper-spiritual with this. And so all you have to do to find out if you've truly renounced yourself is to examine your life and decision-making and ask the question as to why you do anything that you do. What is your motivation? What is your driving love? Is it self or is it obedience to Christ? That simple. And so why, for example, are you about to make the decision that you're about to make? In fact, some of you right now are perhaps in the process of making a decision, but you have absolutely no self-sacrificing Christward reason as to why. It's just Neutral. And I tell you the truth, that if you're not thinking about the Christ-centered reason or mission-focused reason as to why, then what will naturally come about always is some kind of reason for self. And because biblically there is zero neutrality, John is clear on this. And so you have no real idea as to why you're making the decision that you're about to make other than maybe it'll save you a little bit of money. Maybe it'll relieve some pressures. Maybe it'll bring you a little more happiness or some other seemingly neutral reason on the surface. Yet unbeknownst to you, it has been forged in the pursuit of self. How much of your decision-making every single day is utterly controlled by the mission given to you from the one whom you call Lord? From big things to small things. Why do you buy what you buy? Why do you live where you live? Why are you pursuing that education or that career or that job? Why are you still justifying that particular relationship? Even if you can't point to an overtly sinful reason for it, that is never the question, is it? Again, you hear me say over and over again that the question is never what is wrong with this pursuit or this decision. Rather, the question is what is right about this. What is virtuous about this? What is holy about this? What about it has been filtered through a radical, mission-shaped lens forged on a pathway of self-denial? That is the question. And so the first prerequisite to following Jesus is that you must deny yourself. This is an issue of association, an issue of identity, This is an issue of why you do what you do or don't do what you don't do. This is an issue of priorities and agendas and goals. In fact, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 31. He said in that very radical statement that I die daily. That is a willful mindset that he would wake up and put on every single day. Every day that he woke up, he said effectively that I must kill the old man. I must lay down my life for the purposes of Christ. I must lay down my pursuit and goals for the goal of Christ. And Paul, as you know, is a very unique man. He had a very unique mission, and calling, but the principle remains the same for us. Do you wake up every single morning and ask yourself, what, again, today must be denied? What priorities and propensities and justifications and rationalizations that are not befitting of one who professes Christ as Lord must I renounce? Where have I grown lazy? Where have I grown numb and hardened? Or again, do I need to start repenting? What things do I need to just put away or cut out of my life? And because every time I dabble in them and, and they're just neutral things, nothing overtly sinful, nothing overtly wicked about them, but every time I allow my mind and my heart to again wander into those pursuits, my passions for Christ and my passion for His mission begins to fade. begins to take a back seat. Before I know it, somehow, every decision, when I truly analyze it, has been somehow made once again in the pursuit of self. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus means in verse 23 when he says that not only must you deny yourself, and notice, you must also daily take up your cross. That is not a happy image. The cross was an instrument of death instrument of suffering. And so to say something like take up your cross, that would be to say effectively that you have been put on a pathway of death. And so now you have one task. And that is from this point forward, everything that you say and everything that you do and everything that you think serves one purpose and one purpose alone. And that is to keep bringing your life to an end. Your former life. And notice, Jesus says that you must do this daily. This is a daily task, a daily recognition that your old life and your old identity must not be merely denied. That is where it has to begin, but that is not sufficient. Rather, notice, you must also now view it as something that must be put to death. And the nature of that illustration is that this is a path that promises to you, hear this, hardship. Notice, he doesn't say, take up your bed or take up your favorite chair. Rather, he says, take up your cross. I hear people all the time talk about this in a trivial way, that my spouse is my cross to bear, and my boss is my cross to bear, that my junkie car that just keeps breaking down is my cross to bear. But that is not the issue. Rather, this is a call, notice, to kill the old identity. You are on a pathway of crucifying it. Cross was an instrument by which a person's life was smothered out. Not only must you deny yourself, but you must also then seek to put it to death. You are on a daily path of seeking to extinguish your former life. And so notice the progression. The confession leads to a denial. The denial leads to a cross-bearing or putting to death. And then once those two are accomplished, now you are in a position to follow. Which, of course, is synonymous with obedience putting Jesus in charge. And so that is the mandate. That is the terms of true discipleship flowing from a true confession. To confess Jesus is to de-confess yourself, and not only is it to de-confess yourself, but it is also to learn the art of dying to self. You must put that old man to death every single day. And so that is the call, that is the true call of the gospel. That is the principle of true discipleship and therefore must be true for anyone who should desire to follow him. But then notice what he says then in verses 24 through 26. If verse 23 is the gospel mandate, here then is the gospel motivations, Gospel motivations, and these are three motivations that come to us in the form of complete paradoxes. Notice all three of these verses begin here with the word for, which means that they're giving the reason or the motivation for what he just said in verse 23. And so here's what ought to compel us. Verse 24, notice he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, very important, for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so here again, you have the paradoxes of true discipleship. Here you see the truly backwards nature of the kingdom. And so he says, first of all, that it is only, notice, what you save that you ultimately lose, and it's only what you lose in the cause of Christ that you will ultimately save. And it doesn't really matter what it is, could be a relationship, could be money, could even be your own life, if that's what God desires of you. For some people, this means a literal losing of their life. That was certainly the case for the 12 and many of these missionaries that you saw. And so it doesn't really matter what it is. Rather, the point is that anything not done ultimately for the cause of Christ and the gospel will only result in loss for you. And that is an absolute statement. Christian life is to be unbelievably intentional. And so again, you would do well to ask the question as to what are you pursuing? Why are you pursuing it? So many angst-filled statements right now in politics and court cases, social causes, state of our country, the state of our world, so many willing to suffer loss for their particular cause, even lose their life for their particular cause. And so in a similar way, Jesus here says that his disciples are to be that exact way, but for his cause. And so the question really is, so what are you living for? What are you willing to risk for and suffer loss for? Maybe even die for. In fact, notice what he says in verse 26. He says, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? Mark says loses his soul. How many things do we flirt with because we don't really believe that? How many morally neutral things are we pursuing right now that have nothing to do with eternity or the cause of Christ? In fact, these are financial terms that Jesus uses here, speaking of gains and losses. In fact, Paul gives a very good illustration of this with his own life in Philippians chapter 3. In fact, turn there with you if you can quickly. Philippians chapter 3, Paul here is writing from prison. He is the model of this. Paul was a man who was no stranger to loss or what it meant to shed that old identity for the purposes of identifying with Christ alone. And so starting in verse four, he uses, notice the same financial language as Jesus. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, meaning confidence in himself or confidence in his own identity, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. So Paul had much to boast about. He had a lot of things going for him, socially and materialistically. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so again, you don't get much better than Paul in this particular culture. He was for all intents and purposes at the societal top. He was a high-ranking Pharisee, and high-ranking Pharisees were incredibly wealthy. He had tremendous influence, tremendous social capital. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So again, you can't top Paul. There are none who can beat him in terms of human achievement and human accolades. He is older by this point, and so he is poured out his life to become a Hebrew of Hebrews. And so he has given much. He has sacrificed much. In fact, Paul understood that what you most sacrifice for is in fact what you most worship. And so for Paul, it was becoming the highest decorated Pharisee. He had the purest blood, tribally speaking. He had the highest training. He had the greatest passion. But then in verse seven, notice what he says. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So again, Paul viewed life in terms of a financial column. He says, whatever was gained to me, whatever I sacrificed for, whatever I was recognized for, whatever I was most known for, I have moved all of that gain into a column of loss. And why? Well, for this reason, for the sake of knowing Christ. What does it cost to truly know Christ? Verse 8, more than that. So there's more. I count all things. So not just the things I've worked most hard for, not just the things I'm most identified by, but notice all things, both big and small, so I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value. Notice again, the financial language. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. That is the word skubalon, literally dung. It's about as close to a curse word as you can get in the Greek. And again, why? Well, in order that I might gain Christ. I think Paul missed the memo on free grace. Verse 9, and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that. So here's the purpose. So, so why does he do all that he does in verses 4 through 10? Well, in order that I might gain or attain the resurrection from the dead. Here's a man who refused to value his own life. And his compelling motive for doing anything that he did was the hope, as he says, of gaining Christ. And because he had a perspective that to gain Christ would require him to first lose self. He understood that having Christ was one and the same as devaluing self. He understood that he could not serve two masters. He could not have his old life and Christ. He couldn't just merely add Christ or tack on Christ. Rather, he had to completely shed everything that he was if he was to gain Christ. That's a radical perspective. Such a far cry from just believe in Jesus. And understand the argument, to lose his life was in reality no loss for him, was it? And because, notice, he was now valuing something outside of him. Their surpassing value was placed in Christ. And so in that sense, Paul became a tremendously free man. He was no longer bound and chained by the pursuit of self, by the pursuit of what he was formerly sacrificing for. Rather, everything was now oriented toward gaining Christ, enduring what Christ endured, experiencing what he experienced, suffering what he suffered. In fact, that's brought out a little bit more in verse 26 of Luke. So, first motivation is eternal life, verse 24. Second motivation is eternal gain, verse 25. And then the third motivation is, notice, eternal honor, verse 26. It says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so again, this is all about an eternal perspective. In the context, the shame here that's being spoken of is the shame that might result in confessing Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Remember, there were many who thought that Jesus might have been a prophet, but very few at this point were willing to confess him as Messiah. And so being in the midst of a very religious and very spiritual and therefore very political situation to call Jesus Christ could have some significant consequences to follow him would likely result in tremendous shame from the world. Like that is the very concept picked up in the language of taking up your cross again, to receive capital punishment by Rome and to be placed on a cross was to receive a penalty of shame. You were literally strewn out naked in front of the public to suffer that agonizing death the death of extreme criminals, shameful criminals. And so to confess Jesus as the Messiah was to confess him as a crucified Messiah. Again, that was shameful. That was weak. There's no power in that. There's no honor in that from a human perspective. And so Jesus here is saying that for the true disciple, Denying yourself and taking up your cross may in fact result in shame for you from the world, but here's the point, there is only one approval that truly matters. And notice the piling up of terms, just to drive the point home. This is an honor that comes when Jesus comes back in his glory, but notice not only his glory, but also glory of the Father and glory of his holy angels. In other words, either you will receive the full honors from heaven, or you will receive the full shame from heaven. Either you are willing to receive shame from the world now because you and your message look weak, or you will receive shame for all of eternity. And so when you put them together, all three of these motivations function to give us an eternal perspective. And so what is your purpose in confessing Jesus as the Christ? In fact, that is the implied question that Jesus wants to get these would-be disciples to ask. Is it for something temporal, something fleeting, something having to do with the fulfillment of self? Or do you understand that to confess Jesus as the Messiah is to come to an end of yourself? It's putting to death all that you think you are owed. Again, total disassociation, total repudiation of yourself. To be a disciple of Christ is to understand that you are not your own. Either you've been purchased by him, you've been bought by him. And make no mistake, that is the language of a slave market. You are in every aspect owned by him, and so there is no sense in which you are permitted to pursue anything for self. Again, a radical call. This is a comprehensive call where Christ demands everything. Not just what's left over after you've spent the majority for self. And so when you look at your life, what do you see? That is the question. What do people see? Do they see Christ? Do they see one following in his steps and sold out for his mission? Or do they see a person still wrapped up in their own personal pursuits? So what are you known for? When people think of you, what do you think comes to their mind? Do they see a person whose decisions don't really make sense because to a lost and dying world, your decisions and the cause of Christ look like loss? They look weak, they look shameful. And if you hear this text as somehow demanding that you must now go and inflict pain upon yourself to make certain that you get into heaven, then you don't understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, notice how the entire passage is framed out. He includes a very important word that we tend to miss. Notice what he says, verse 23. He says that if anyone wishes or desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. This is a passage about desire. More than that, this is a passage that exposes desire. In fact, these three verbs here in verse 23 are written in what's known as the imperative mood, which, as you know, is typically understood as the mood of command or mood of instruction. And so what's important to understand is that these are written in the third person. And so notice he doesn't say that you, second person, that you are to deny yourself, you are to take up your cross, you are to follow me. Rather, he says, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. Let him follow me, third person, which is to say that these are not direct commands. Again, typically written in the second person. Rather, they're written in the third because it's just the way it was express. This is the way that you would speak to a large crowd. In other words, this is not Jesus saying that you need to start denying yourself and you need to start picking up your cross and you need to start following him better if you want to actually prove yourself as somehow worthy of him and worthy of heaven. Rather, what he is saying, and hear this, what he is saying is that this is what the true Christian already does. In other words, this is what naturally flows from one who is truly professing him. In fact, it cannot flow from him. In other words, this is a description of a true disciple. Again, the Christian life is not about working harder to show forth your piety and hoping that Jesus will let you in. Christian life is about full service to the master because he has already bought you and changed your heart. And so more than this being a passage about what you need to go and do, this is a passage about self-examination. In other words, can you say that this is right now a description of your life? That is the question. In fact, Jesus even says that before you follow him, you must count the cost, right? In fact, if you remember back to the parable of the soils, you remember that two of the three bad soils still produced fruit, right? It was the shallow soil that was scorched by the heat, described there as the temptations and trials of the world, and there was also the thorny soil where after it grew up, was choked out by the pleasures and the goods of the world. Those are descriptions, beloved, of the self-professing Christian who never counted the cost. He never understood what they were signing up for. And so they were willing to receive the benefits of Jesus' message, but they were not willing to receive the sufferings and sacrifices of Jesus' message. They were not willing to endure loss so that they might receive gain. They were not willing to deny themselves. Their life was still about them. And so they were scorched out by the anxieties of the world because they were still living for self. They were drawn away by the goods of the world because they were still consumed with self. And so again, there are many forms of Christianity in our day that will offer you promises all day long. But they are false promises. And because ultimately what they're offering you is a crown, but without a cross. They're offering you happiness without humility, some kind of life without any loss. In fact, that is exactly what the devil offered Jesus in his temptation of him. Remember chapter 4, he says, I will give you all this domain and its glory. So he was offering him the crown of glory, the very thing that Jesus came for. For it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, the devil, it shall be yours. Jesus understood that he was to inherit the nations. He was to receive a crown. He was to receive glory. But it was to come through the path of the cross. What the devil offered Jesus is what so many false teachers in our day offer people. They offer promises and glory and happiness and comfort and ease and health and heaven, but all of it with zero cost. There is no cross to bear. There is no self to deny. In fact, their message is one of self-fulfillment. And so as one man said on this, in the upside down kingdom of God, the way up is the way down. Save your life, you must lose it. To gain your eternal soul, you must forfeit your temporary life. To receive the honors of heaven, you must endure the shame of the world. And so in a very profound way, the message of the gospel, beloved, is a message, again, of self-repudiation. It is the heart of Jesus' message. There is no crown without a cross. There is no life without loss. Not if you claim to follow a crucified, suffering Messiah. And so to follow Jesus, you must shed yourself, all of yourself, all of your identity, all of your self-love, all of your sinful pursuits. This is a radical abandonment of yourself in every possible way. And so if you think about it, when you put it all together in an ultimate sense, this is actually a call to truly love yourself to love your soul, to care for your eternal state. And so the way that you love yourself in this life is not by affirmation. It's not by the pursuit of dreams. It's not by trying to remove toxic elements from your life. It's not by trying to learn to overcome trauma or mend bad relationships. Rather, the greatest way and the only way to truly love yourself is to deny yourself. For in the backwards paradoxical kingdom of God, it is to cease from fighting for self. For any true disciple, Christ alone must be your full identity. He is your purpose. He is your mission. But the reason that I say this passage is more about self-examination than it is about what you should try and do is because there is no unbeliever who truly desires to follow Jesus anyway, Right? Again, Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, who desires that except the one with the converted heart? And so the entire point, this passage, is to say that if you genuinely desire him, then these verses will be true of you. Fact. So again, what are you known for? When people look at your life for the ones closest to you and who know you best, think about you, what do they see? What are your passions? What are your hopes and dreams? How do you orient yourself? What controls your decisions? Is it Christ and Christ alone and everything that comes with being on mission for Him? Or is it still the purposes and pleasures of self? Again, I say that this is a message that just doesn't sell. But I tell you the truth that the true disciple and follower of Jesus Christ hears these words, but only sees gain. And so in a culture of individualism and autonomous self-expression, the true Christian rejects such things. Christ is worth it to them. He is their life. He is their surpassing value. So, what about you? Are you one who has counted the cost and chosen to daily die to self? Or are you still trying to gain the whole world thinking you can still keep your soul? I tell you the truth the gospel of self love and self fulfillment will only kill you. But the gospel of self denial saves, it is the road to heaven because on that road, you follow the self-denying, crucified, suffering, shamed Messiah. That is the path, and that is what Jesus declares must be true if you want to follow him. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we do thank you for this word, for such a study as this. Thank you for the opportunity to see what you've truly said and given us the opportunity to see one of our Lord's most difficult statements. And so help us to live the kingdom life. Help us to lay aside our preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian and what it must mean to be one who lives for you. And may we enter on your terms, which, as you have said, is the narrow way May we live as you want us to live. May we walk that narrow path, though difficult it may be, and yet may we walk it in your strength, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And also knowing that he is our great and sympathetic high priest who never asks us to do anything that he is himself has not done. So may we rest in in that truth. May we live as a strange people in a strange land, sojourning this world, but always in a state of joy and posture of glad submission to your word, knowing that you are Lord and that our reward awaits us in heaven. So be honored, I pray, with the lives of these people. May the obedience of this church be a fragrant aroma before you. May you accept our words of praise as we now turn to song for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.